Hello from Houston, Texas, where I'm being hosted today by our portfolio company, Group Raise, in their offices. You can listen to their co-founder and CEO, Devin Baptiste, tell his awesome story in episode five of Crossing Borders. If you didn't hear it, you should definitely go back and check it out. Welcome to this episode of Crossing Borders, where I interview entrepreneurs doing startups across borders and the people who support them with a focus on companies that have some relationship to Latin America. My conversation today is with Jason Grillon, co-founder of Virtu, a sustainable fashion company with production in its native Dominican Republic that actually pays all of their producers a living wage, more than three times more than traditional producers. I first met Jason and his co-founder Guillaume in Startup Chile when they were down participating in the program. They worked out of our offices for a little while and we got to know them. I've watched them create a sustainable fashion brand that has so far created button-down shirts, alpaca sweaters, which I really like, and t-shirts. Jason tells his story about how he went from the Dominican Republic to study law and business in Germany and ended up starting his own business, how they got started on Kickstarter, what it's like doing business in the Dominican Republic and in Bolivia, where they produce the pullovers, while having a primary market that's Europe and the United States. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jason Grillon. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for doing it. So where are you in the world today? I'm actually in Santo Domingo. Just came back from Germany a couple of weeks ago. Awesome. And what brings you to Santo Domingo? Well, I'm, I'm actually from here. I grew up in the BR and our production is mainly based here. We produce here and in Bolivia. So we are constantly moving within the countries. And so tell me a little bit about your business. What do you do? So we're a vertically integrated brand. And we do, uh, it's all about the social impact that we make. We have a very interesting system that allows end customers to do a throughout traceability of their end garments. And we've been taking that to all of our, to all the different products. We started with shirts and now we are doing corporate gear and uniform. So using fashion as a vehicle to change people's lives. That's our business. And so your first product was the white shirts, right? Yeah, yeah, we called it the perfect shirt. <laughs> and why did you decide to start with the shirts rather than another product? I believe that more than anything, because it was a product that I wish I had before. I studied law and, and being a lawyer, I used a bunch of shirts and I'm, I've never been too inclined to fashion or to consumerism. And I wish the things that I bought would, I could have had an accessible option that was in line with my with my priorities and what I think uh, consumerism and fashion should look like. So that that's mainly the reason that we decided to go with with a shirt, and also because there is not much innovation in terms of men's clothing. The, everyone is always going to girls uh, first. And so, where did you where do you produce the shirts? We produce it in the in Santo Domingo or close to Santo Domingo in a slum. It's called San Carlos, and we use. We use a very small atelier, or it used to be small, and now it has grown bigger with our production. We partner up with them, and we started training deaf-mute people. So our producers are deaf-mute from a nearby slum in the close area, and they've been, of course, producing with us, getting better at what they do, and definitely interesting. When we started this, we, we decided, of course, firstly, we knew we needed at least a good investment, so we didn't go train them and, and hire them in an unsustainable way. So we did a, a Kickstarter campaign that allowed us to, to have this first production ready and to actually pay them properly for for almost six months. And 
did you already know that you wanted them to produce before you did the Kickstarters or did you do the Kickstarter and then went back and said, okay, now we need to find someone to produce? Well, we had an idea because for the Kickstarter, we did come to the VR with the crew, with my co-founder, Guillaume, and we did started already to look for the people that we wanted to produce. Where we were going to do it physically and, and officially, it was still unclear. But we were definitely, we had an idea of the type of people that we wanted to impact with the product once we started with the production. And how did the Kickstarter do? How much were you able to sell? Well, we sold over 1,000 shirts, which was a very good, you know, a very good feeling because it was something that we, we didn't know how to do. And we set up the goal at 50K and we ended up receiving almost 60 in euros. So that was definitely something satisfying to see how people reacted to, to the products and the, and the innovation we were bringing. So that's kind of an, an underrated step after a successful Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Actually, now you have to produce a thousand shirts and you probably, <laughs> you hadn't produced shirts before, right? No. So no, no, no. What, what, take me through that process for what did it feel like too? Did, I mean, it feels awesome to start, but what does it feel like once you have to know you need to produce a thousand shirts? Yeah, I think we were, we were, the one thing that we did definitely well was advising ourselves and asking everyone to get our proper advice on how to do this. I think we could have made much more mistakes than we did. And we could have ended with like a lot of people, even some friends of ours have done that is using the Kickstarter just to produce the product and not, not to build a company. And that defeats all the sustainability purposes that the Kickstarter itself, itself has. We did it slower. We did, we had some minor delays in this first Kickstarter that we did. At the end, we ended up with a very nice product with a huge impact on the community that we intervened in up with a solid, with a solid company. So let's talk a little bit about the, the people who are actually making the shirts. So you had an idea of who you wanted to have make them. But then once you have the order, how did you choose the people that you have today? And what was that process like of evaluating different people or different organizations to do it? Yeah, that was one of the most stressing factors. And at the end, to be completely honest, what we decided was that the best approach was actually to to train a lot of people and just to choose that to let them realize which were the best ones and those who who didn't fit our profile what we wanted to do or didn't appreciate what we were doing we either got them jobs in other production sites after they trained themselves or they just left by themselves so it was a very natural process i believe the um, Biggest element, I think, of, of social enterprises and, and when you're trying to defeat a, a model that has been installed for so many years with the low pay on the producers, I think it was a lot of speaking to them. So we guide them through the whole way so they knew why we were doing this and how did we balance out this extra payment that we were giving them. So normally they would receive the minimum salary, a person that is working on, on, on garment production. And we were paying three times that. So they, for them, it was also tricky to understand that, that we were actually doing it or we were giving them incentives to actually do it, to actually do it. But once we figure out that we needed to talk to them, we needed to guide them through the process, it went way faster and way smoother, I have to say. And so what's the minimum wage and how far does that take somebody in the DR versus how much farther does the three times the minimum salary take somebody? That, that's a great question, and that takes me actually deeper into the problem behind garment production. So it came here, the, the production of garments came to the Dominican Republic because, of course, we are very close to the U.S. 
it made a lot of sense and there are a lot of people that were unemployed. So it came as a surplus to the house income. We are, of course, a mattress society, uh, sadly still, but even more before. And it came as a complementary salary for the household. So the idea was only to attract women to work in this type of productions and to get them to have a complementary participation in the household. But they weren't, it was never meant to sustain a whole a whole house because it could have never. Right now, the minimum wage or the living wage in the Dominican Republic, or according to the central bank, is 23,000 pesos, which is around $500. And the minimum salary is $170. So what we do is that we actually carry them towards the living wage. It's not a made-up number. It just ends up being a pretty number to market. But it's actually something that is calculated according to the living wage. And so what's the difference in terms of what can somebody buy or what's the lifestyle like when they actually make a living wage versus just the minimum wage? Yeah, so living wage is... Having a, a decent life, so meaning you, you get three meals a day, uh, you cannot save any money or you cannot do any splurge, you cannot have any, any type of luxury. So it's a very simple life, but you can actually at least sustain your main expenses. So paying the light in your house, water, electricity, so that kind of stuff that are, that are very basic and just the minimal living standards according to in, international organizations. And then you have the minimum wage that is uh, established in so many of our Latin American countries that it's basically for something that is, again, you need help either from your family or from your, if you don't have a husband, then it gets, that's where it gets complicated. So they do complimentary jobs on the weekends, at nights, because it, it is fairly impossible to live only from that. Yeah, that's, that's really tough if you're living on a hundred and, was a hundred seventy? Yeah, it's $170. Yeah. yeah I can't I mean some people will spend that on like a night out in the US. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly. Really amazing. And Yeah. So how many people do you have doing this work today? So today we have five people in Dominican Republic or in Santo Domingo and then we have another production site in La Vega which is doing t-shirts it's a small co-op of single women. That's also very interesting jobs uh, very interesting work we're doing there. And we're also producing in Bolivia, in La Paz, with a beautiful producer network. And they just assigned the different, to the different producers. It's a very smart agency, a lady called Patricia Maldonado that is, has been working with ethical fashion for plus 20 years. And what she does is that she connects with people that can assure quality, but are working from home, close to their families. They don't have to spend their money, you know, transportating to an office space. They, because that we produce alpaca products and that you can produce alone at your place. It's not the same with shirts. We couldn't replicate that model in the DR, but to the reality in Bolivia, it works quite fine. So let's go to back to you've created the Kickstarter. You've produced the thousand shirts. You do the delivery. What was your next product? Was it the Bolivian sweater, the pullover, or was it the t-shirt? It was actually the pullover. We were selected to participate in Startup Chile. That's where we crossed paths. And that platform allowed us to explore new options in Latin America. Sadly, Chile is not a, or gladly, Chile is not an option because they're above. The living standard in Chile is, is quite good. They don't, they don't particularly need help of, uh, our business model doesn't fit there. 
but we focus in developing a production site in Bolivia because it's definitely closer than our two other locations, our headquarters being in Germany and our other production site being in Dominican Republic. We allowed ourselves, of course, to start the production there, do the, all the visits, certified the conditions, uh, how people were actually living from this money, because we don't come from from the reality in Bolivia. I, I can easily say or attain that in the Dominican Republic, with this amount of money, you can do this much more. And the type of training that people need in order to actually progressively get out of the poverty cycle, I couldn't do the same before with Bolivia. So we did a lot of ground visits. Guillaume, my co-founder, went twice. I also went two times to Bolivia, trying, you know, to get a good sense. And the lead of the producers there, Patricia Maldonado, is actually a person that we've grown to have a very good relationship with. And we do also supervision of the projects with an independent Finnish brand that does that kind of stuff. It's called a work ahead. They call the producers directly or they send them SMS to see how they're doing, if they are, what's the condition of the work, how could they improve the work that we've been doing with them and how do we really impact the communities itself. So we are in direct contact with the producers there. And can people who buy your products see what's going on with the producers to, you know, verify that you're actually doing what you're saying you're doing? In the webpage, if you go under bird to that rocks, you're going to be able to look at the producers and send them messages. What we've also tried to do more and more uh, these days, as we are, particularly the Dominican Republic, is a tourism hub. So we allow our customers that are here to actually come with us to their production sites. People that bought our shirts in the first crowdfunding campaign and they want to check out how we're doing, how we, the production site, they want to meet the producers themselves. So we, we make that connection. And that's one of the, of course, most satisfying parts of the job. Yeah, that's really cool. So I actually have one of the, the pullovers and I can say they're awesome. Uh, use them in Chile and also in, in Wisconsin winter. So you've, <laughs> you've done a good job. Thank you. So what was it like? I mean, you, you, you said you didn't really know much about Bolivia when you went there the first time. What was it like actually trying to find a producer? And did you know you wanted to do a sweater or a pullover? Or was it just, you know, you got to the reality that there's a lot of alpaca there. Let's do that. No, in this case, it was more of an organic process. I met the daughter of the lead producers, the the person that is producing there. She told me about the amazing job that her mother was doing. And we wanted to get in on that, uh, to be completely honest. So we went directly with the mindset of finding if it was true that she was doing something as amazing. She's providing jobs for more than 500 women there. And we wanted to understand how we could support that, make her more sustainable, make her in a more direct connection with the final consumers in our markets, which are mainly German-speaking Europe and the U.S. So that was the whole purpose of our visit there. And then we found out that she could also do amazingly high-quality production and products. And that's that's when we definitely said, okay, let's do it. And we decided to launch it with a Kickstarter campaign, also the, the products there. And so how did you prepare for the Kickstarter campaign this time? Was there any difference from the first time, or did you use the same playbook? Actually, it was way easier this time. We knew how to play it. We knew how to actually contact the producers. We knew that that the story wasn't as emotional as the first one, and it wasn't a massive product or a massive consumption product like a white shirt. It was something more specific, more more expensive. So we we had all the calculations ready, and and we knew how to market it properly. At the first time, to be completely honest, it was more or less a, a try and lose. 
with the shirt, and it was a very frustrating month. We underestimated the amount of work that that was going to take when we decided. You know, I always like to do the story that we, when we were doing the market research for to set up the the goal for our first Kickstarter campaign, which ended up being 50k. The exercise that, that Guillaume, my co-founder, and I did was actually saying, okay, so you have 2,000 Facebook friends, I have 2,000 Facebook friends. If a quarter of that buys a single shirt, then we're going to be able to get to 50K. Of course, that couldn't be further from reality and, <laughs> and how things actually work. And we ended up receiving more customers and orders from people that we didn't know anything about that were actually active and either on Kickstarter or actively looking ethical fashion and the, and what we were providing as a company than people in our network. Wow. So that's either you've got a really good reach on your marketing side or friends that don't support you enough. One or the other. <laughs> <laughs> or, the other. <laughs> or both. Or both. Or both, yeah. <laughs> so how many of the pullovers did you sell in the in the Kickstarter? More than 200. We sold 250, 280 pullovers, and we did double that because we were preparing our stocking for Christmas, which was a very good month for our company. Definitely the best so far. And how many people in Bolivia have worked on the project? We did eight producers, eight single producers there, uh, producing at home. We went to the home of, mo of most of them, so it was very nice to see the pictures, actually, and how they felt with working with us, because that, that was also something that we innovated in Bolivia, as we didn't have the on-ground connection or uh, the long-term on-ground connection that we had with Dominican Republic. In Bolivia, we tried this SMSing and, you know, connecting directly with the producers and, and receiving their feedback that it, they were actually super happy with the product. They were super proud also with the product. I think that was that made a huge difference. And I'm sure you've heard this too, but some investors or even just some people will say, you know, there's no point in, in investing in a company or even supporting a company that's trying to, you know, be social. You should either be a company that's fully for profit or you should be a charity. How would you respond to people who say that? No, I, of course, respect that. I think that is definitely from a previous economy model. I believe that right now, this is exactly what we need. Companies that combine their profitability with impact. And I'm very open with this. And I say it every time that I have the chance to, is that being socially responsible is what makes us profitable. We make a profit and we make sales because we have a social responsibility model that is so clear and that is so in the core of our business model. I don't believe we it's it's particularly our shirts or our pullovers and, and now in the new products that we're launching, backpacks and, and uniforms and workwear, we sell because we have that direct connection with producers and we do what people are not willing to do. Uh, so that's I think that's where the key is. I, I do understand when I see companies doing linear CSR projects like something that is completely unrelated to what they do and that they don't get and from what they don't get any profit from. And that is dangerous as a company because then what they're doing is that they are doing something that is completely unsustainable, that if next year they don't have the extra profit to do that, they're going to cut it off. And what we believe is in doing corporate citizenship approach, having circular impact that actually comes back to the company. In our case, we invest less in marketing. We invest less in legal procedures because we, we are a part of trust law from Reuters. So we are a part of a huge pro bono network of law firms. 
we receive some grants. So it's there is a lot of way of combining it these days that that allow it to make sense in order to also be competitive in foreign markets. I think particularly in fashion, trying to compete in terms of cost of production is ridiculous these days. It's impossible to compete with the big guys that already have their own, you know, they produce the fabric just for them. It's so efficient right now that it's actually going the other way around that you can make some profit and some and gain some market share. Yeah, I think what you just described is more the the Tom Shoes model rather than just trying to tack on social responsibility to a business that doesn't really fit. I mean, that was at the core of their business model was one to start on the producer side and then also on the one for one. And that's right at the core. And it's probably one of the reasons why they're able to sell so much and why it caught on. So I I think you're right in that if you're, you're putting it into the core of the business, it totally makes sense. Yeah, but I do understand when the, that investors are still a bit scared and they are a bit wary of the of the system itself. But I do believe that if good founders have to find a way of putting this into the core of the business, so it actually benefits the business in a way. This is also our way of making of being responsible with our producers because this is going to allow us to provide jobs for longer time with a more sustainable approach. And I also don't be, I like to separate it very clearly with nonprofits in terms of that you should be able to make money while helping others. It's not something that is contrary. Yeah, I think that's right. And especially for millennials and younger people who I think factor that into their buying decision. I mean, I personally switched from Uber to Lyft, you know, three, four months ago. I mean, I guess like six months ago now where, you know, it's not a huge thing, but it does matter if I'm going to spend money doing this. I may as well go to a company that is, you know, they seem to be pretty nice rather than one that's got lots and lots of baggage. I think a yeah. lot of people are making similar decisions in in other products. Yeah. What our business model has always been is providing same looking products. We don't believe that ethical fashion has to look phony or have less quality or cost more money. You just need to be smarter in the way that you communicate it and the amount of money that you spend in marketing. That has been our motto so far, and that's why we've survived in such an aggressive industry like fashion. So let's go back to your background. So you talked about, you said you had gone to law school. How does a guy that is from Dominican Republic end up going to law school and doing nothing related to law, starting an ethical fashion brand? In Germany. It's (laughs) above all. Uh, that's a, no, I, I believe that's one of the issues of coming from a small developing country. I believe is that the options are not that many. And I wanted to do something that allowed me to move across path easily. I never intended to be a, a full on lawyer. I wanted to have a, a very good base that allowed me to move around. So I did that. And, and throughout my, my law school, I mainly worked with big international organizations like UNICEF, UNDP and the German corporation. It was very clear that I wanted to move to business afterwards immediately. And I did I moved to Germany and did an, an MLB, which is the only program that is a master's in law and business. It combines the two and it allows lawyers to understand more the business side and vice versa. Then I got into, we went on a visit to Berlin. And there, that's where I actually saw and figured that the problems that I wanted to solve and the opportunities that I wanted to bring to my country and my region were actually true business that I could bring them more efficiently and and to provide them better. And do you remember, was there an instant or like something that happened that made you decide that you wanted to do it? Or was it a gradual process? To be completely honest, 
it was I was studying in Hamburg in the northern part of Germany, and we went to Berlin in a study trip visiting startups, uh, you know, Berlin startup, and we went to some that were doing money, and I said like, hey, but that's a that's a shitty idea, and they're making money. My my idea is actually better. I bet I could make money with this. You know, I could, I bet I could actually make a company out of this. So that's when I, I scratched completely my thesis idea on international commerce, whatever, you know, legal procedures, blah, blah, blah. And I decided to focus on the business plan behind Virtue because I had the idea. I just didn't know how, how to do it or where to start. And is that where you met your business partner in law school? I actually know. I actually, when I moved to Berlin, I met Guillaume by complete chance. He was doing an exit and I was looking, I knew that I needed a partner that was from a completely different world than mine that didn't come from a social enterprise or international corporation, development corporation, or that wasn't Latin American because I wanted someone that understood the customer, not the producer. I was already very clear on what we needed to do on this side of the equation. So I met with Yom and it was an instant click when, of course, we had some very basic shirts at the moment. And I showed him, I want to do this and I want to do this. So I had my MVP, very basic MVP. I told him like, "Hey, I want I want to do this. You seem like the right guy to do it with." And we've, I have to say, it has worked out very good afterwards. And why did you originally choose Germany as the place to study rather than another place in Europe or the U.S.? Well, Germany allowed me to connect with. This is a very good question. I actually, I, I imagine the U.S. was too expensive. And even though a lot of Dominican, we have a lot of scholarships to go to the U.S., but I am, I was born in the U.S. This happens a lot with Dominican youngsters from my generation that we were born in the U.S. because our parents lived there or whatever. So we have U.S. citizenship. So we don't apply for any of the scholarships. So that wasn't an option. And I didn't want it to have a, a huge step afterwards. And Germany just gave me this scholarship. It was exactly the program that I was looking for. I think it was more the program that chose my destination than the than the country itself. And was the program in in German or was it in English? It was in English. It was it was in English. I did speak a bit German before, but it was it was in English. I didn't. I I ended up speaking less German after the program than I got in when I got there. And so, do you still have a main office in Germany and in also in? The DR, or where do you guys normally do your business out of? Are you mobile? Yeah, no, that's a good point. No, we have our headquarters are in Germany. Uh, we are based in Berlin. We have an NGO here in the Dominican Republic because the only thing that we do is impact and spending money here. And we have a, a company in the U.S., which is the Matrix. It's the one that receives investment and where we handle most of the income receiving. That's interesting. It's an interesting structure. And so what's it like in the Dominican Republic in terms of the business climate? I mean, most people, I would say in the U.S., probably the only things they really know about the DR are probably the vacation spots. So what's it like to actually live there and do business? And what are kind of some of the opportunities that are happening right now? Right now is a great time for the DR. We've been pushing already the startup ecosystem for, for a couple of years. So you now you see some startups growing here. There are some very good examples, like Silicon Cabarete, which is a project led by Fabrice Grinda, which is mm-hmm. a, a big French investor that is leading a project in the northern part of the country with a lot of developers. So we have more and more developers growing here and actually training very well in his startups. One of his biggest investments is a Brazilian startup called Instacarro, which has his, the, the whole back end here in the Dominican Republic. 
it's a huge startup in Brazil. We're seeing more and more of that. Definitely a lot of developers and backend offices being here because we're very close from the U.S. We're very well connected exactly because of tourism and we're in the same time zone. So I, I see it more and more up and coming. And now that we have investors going like uh, the same Fabrice, some other guys that are interested in, into looking what's going on here, it's going to keep growing. And there are, the best thing is that there are a lot of things to do and how close we are to the U.S. and the free trade agreements. The Dominican Republic is very welcoming to investment, both getting in and getting out the money. And we are well with everyone because we're so we're small, so we don't have any major conflict with any of the big countries. We have very tight relationships, a relation with the U.S., with the EU, even with Central America, South America, everything. We don't have any enemies, I have to say. And so how is the ecosystem divided up? Is it all more or less in one or two cities? Is it spread out? What's it look like? Well, we have uh, Punta Cana, which is the tourism spot and where it's a good place to sell the product. So most of the product oriented final products are there. So they started doing honey and all of the innovation in food are based there. Uh, then Santo Domingo, it's mainly tech and business trying to a lot of services moving here. And then you have Puerto Plata and Cabarete, which is this uh, Silicon Cabarete, the project from Fabris, from Fabris that has been attracting more and more investors and former Google, former Facebook guys uh, basing out there and camping out there because of the, work, of the good connections with New York, the low prices, and then also the abilities to develop new, new solutions from there and a lot of developers. Where are all the developers coming from? Are there good universities that are pumping them out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have two great universities pumping out developers. Again, it has, it's a process that has, that took 10 years, but now we have a very good base of, of developers. We also have a very good element is that other great thing is that we are actually the Dominican Republic. So if you're trying to base out a team from one place, it's, this is a very attractive spot to actually tell them, okay, let's do it from the VR and let's, you know, let's camp out there and let's move to the U.S. once we're ready and once we have enough money. Because it is extremely costly to start a company in the U.S. with all that it takes. So if you can base out having your whole team, international team in one place, like, again, Cabarete or, or Punta Cana, and then having great internet connection, all the things that are necessary, and then just jump into the U.S. to meet investors and so on, that's, that seems to be a more feasible option every time. I go and come back to Germany for 400 bucks, and this, way less to the U.S. So it's just an easy place to move than to base out. And what does it cost to get like a nice one bedroom apartment to live out of if you're going to maybe go there and code for six months? A very nice one, not more than $350. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's really uh, amazing. And what does... Yeah, it depends on the area, of course, but, but yeah, you could get something good for $350, $400. What about developer salaries? What's more or less, what, what's kind of the range? Well, this is something, well, of course, it's going to be super open. We, we just hired some people here. We've been looking with good, the good ones. Of course, you're going to get, in Latin American countries, you always get people that say they know how to do it. But people with experience that already have worked with startups, you're talking about 1000 bucks is a good salary. It's a good base salary. Wow. Yeah, that's... Full-time developers. That's really interesting. So I can see why startups are wanting to be based there with the, the location close to the U.S., and $400 to Germany, that's that's really cheap. And you yeah. can barely find that from the U.S., like in New York or Boston even. It's basically because we are now receiving all these low-cost airlines that are coming 
full of tourists and that are leaving empty-handed. So, so it's mainly that we're just getting into the tourism has finally brought something that is very sustainable to the country. That connection with with Europe and the whole world. That's really interesting. And so, yeah. what do you think the Dominican ecosystem will look like, say, five to ten years out? If you had to guess. I believe it's going to be more tech. I'm very much into the ecosystem. I think it's a very important drive of the economy. We don't have petroleum or anything. You know, we have some gold, but we don't have anything that is. We need to be working on this <laughs> right now. So I work a lot and I try to, once the weeks I'm here, I try to take one or two weeks to, to actually work with entrepreneurs and get it out of the, of the ground and get their companies off the ground. But I definitely more tech startups and more combined startups because that's definitely more the tendency. Like we are so vertically integrated brands that can have their both their production and their marketing and everything based here, and this easy connection with the U.S. and the rest of the world. I, I definitely see a, a big trend there, which is something that you don't have. I do believe that there is a big value in having the headquarters close, at least close to the production, if you're vertically integrated, at least. And so going to that point, can you talk a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages of having this company structure where you have production and some of your offices in Latin America, but then your main markets are the U.S. and Europe? Yeah, uh, definitely. I think that this is where sustainability comes from. And this is what globalization was always supposed to be. You're able to provide a very good connection to real products closer to in, this innovative thing that actually the end consumer wants. And you understand that because you've been there, you've traveled or you're part of your company, your co-founders are from the consumer market and you connected with the production, which is something that you control and hold very closer to your, to the core of the company. Shipping out production elsewhere where when I see companies that have changed production sites, Two or three times per year, I see this is definitely, I see an unsustainability trend very clearly there. And I wouldn't want to be messing with that kind of stuff. I think, again, being close to the production side is, is key for, to having a sustainable company down the road. Then you would have any problems with production because of that. And we understand what the producer and there is an added value that you can bring that companies don't normally take advantage of. Because, you know, they want to get as far from production as possible because that was, you know, the tendency for many, many years, it was only internet, all digital. And I'm completely, I don't have anything to do with offline, but that has definitely changed over the years. You know, we don't have new Facebook or new Twitter every day. So in terms of sustainability, I see this being closer to the real. So what do you think that most people who are thinking about starting a business that makes money, but also does social good? get wrong. It seems like it's something that is the dream of many, many different people, many different entrepreneurs. They really would like to do something that has social impact. You don't see that that many companies being able to pull it off. Yeah. I believe that it's mainly understanding that you are playing in the market and you need consumers and you need sales as any other company does. And basing out your company on grants or in a very particular momentum is not going to allow you to build the sustainable impact that you're going to build. So immediately when we thought about, well, about virtue and you said it again, you said it yourself with the Tom's model, people criticize Tom's a lot because the impact that they make is not enough because of the local shoe manufacturer. 
it, the people always are always going to complain. But what they've done is create a very sustainable model that, that works. It Maybe it's not the best impact ever, but it works. And they've thought about how to make this impact marketable and make it actually efficient and better for the company. And I believe that as long as you can do that with your product and you can bring that sustainability towards making your product more efficient, maybe you don't market it because you're not like that and you think that it's wrong, but at least assuring a higher quality of production because you're doing it this way or allowing yourself to bring more innovation or allowing your producers to innovate in the way they produce stuff because of you're giving them those those incentives. But it needs to be tied with traceable, real numbers, you know, that it, it cannot be just a drowning system because most of the consumers are anyways going to react to pricing. And if you just put a higher cost and you don't take advantage of the other positive elements that social entrepreneurship or a social business has, then you're doomed. And so you talked about some of the, the other products that are going to be coming out, a backpack and some workwear. Where are those going to be produced and what kind of products will they be? So the workwear particularly is super exciting for us right now because we've been working with the Dominican government uh, to do a strategy of fair trade commerce. So what we're going to, we're building the first crowd production platform. So that's Extremely interesting because that's one of the elements that ethical fashion has always lacked. We've never been able to produce on a scale and actually be have a very organized production process. So we're building some sort of McDonald's of ethical fashion production. So how to connect all of those small production sites with the international market and us being an intermediary, being able to get large orders and putting them into the small producer's hands with a standardized process that ends the human error that is so typical in small production sites. So that is extremely exciting in terms of the impact that that can have and the scalability that we can have with that. We've been de developing this proprietary system for small production sites already for several months. And we believe that this is definitely going to put us in the next level of impact and to actually be able to connect with large orders. That's the most exciting. And that was brought because of the workwear, because we started receiving larger and larger orders for corporates. And we sat back down and said, okay, can we actually do this under the current situations and the, under the current stage of ethical fashion, not only here, but in the world? And we found out that it wasn't, the conditions are not there. The very little outsourcing manufacturers that are out there that claim to be ethical, they don't have any traceability with their process. And there is definitely not a relationship with the, with marketable content. So you cannot, there is no, the companies when they end up receiving, they believe, they choose to believe that it was made under ethical conditions and it's just number, but we're bringing this human factor that we put under with Virtu. So we put the pictures are there. You can visit the production site. It's not completely far off or, or from a different reality. It's going to be mainly here in the Dominican Republic, different production sites at this network of producers. So we are super excited about that. And we definitely believe that this is the future of the, of the industry. And we have a super exciting project for backpacks in, with refugees. We want the refugees to help us. With the, of course, one of our main markets is German-speaking Europe, and, and refugees is definitely something that has been in the concern of everyone. So we've been building a very smart backpack that we can produce directly with them, showing them how to deal with the process and actually putting, them, putting it for a Kickstarter afterwards. So also super exciting. So when should we look for the Kickstarter for that? We will live three months. Three months. We already have the, the prototype. We are setting up you know, all the production elements. It's not a simple 
as doing it in a, in a country like the Dominican Republic and German-speaking countries, you have a lot of uh, processes and, <laughs> and and complications. But And also working with refugees is something that is legally complex. We've been working super hard on that. And I think it's going to be a great product. Uh, like one of the best elements of having your own production company, at least at this stage, is that I get to love all of the products that we, that we produce. I cannot stop wearing the T-shirt. That's one product that I love. So can you talk a little more about the t-shirts? We didn't go too deep into that. Well, what are they like sure. and who produces them and where can we buy them? Yeah, it's a great. Thank you. Again, I'd love to talk about this particular product. It's the newest. We've been working to build a perfect line. We're just always going to be this monochromatic fashion brand because that's what that's what we decided to be. And I think it's important for us to keep it that way and then diversifying through other micro brands within Bridge who are doing B2B more things that are you know, going towards tackling the core problems in the industry. But for virtual, we decided to, the last product that, that we introduced was the perfect t-shirt. It's a white t-shirt that it's a combination with 100% organic cotton and bamboo. We have some bamboo fabric there. That is all the details are made of bamboo. And of course, the red coconut button that we have also decorating the back end of the of the product. It's super soft. I, I just love it, to be honest. And now for the summer, it's our summer. I know it, you're in Chile, so it's your winter. For summer in the Dominican Republic, even though it's super hot, it's super refreshing. I, I really like it. And you can buy it in our webpage, Virtu That Rocks, you know, shipping worldwide. I'm actually in Houston today visiting one of our oh. portfolio companies, so I could have definitely used one of your T-shirts. It's oh, very hot here. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. So... I want to go back to your workwear idea to dig in a little more. So how does that work? Walk me through if say I'm I'm a business and I have, you know, 30 employees and I want to have uniforms for them made through you. How does that work? What we're doing is very innovative in a way that we don't we don't only go to your regular sales department and say, "Hey, would you need uniforms? Let me provide you with uniforms." But we actually allow you to Combine your CSR efforts, your corporate social responsibility efforts with your regular purchases. So what we're allowing is that with this normal purchase that you make every year, you can actually end up helping X amount of people. So we give companies right now a metric, an impact metric of the purchase. And when you order 500 pullovers, you know that you're sending three of our producers to school for four months and you're providing jobs for them for two months. So that is just something that is very gratifying for the companies that they can also combine with their corporate identity and with the message that they're sending to the world because of this responsible solution that they took. And do you help the producers to document it so that the company gets the photos or videos or testimonials from them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. We are, as we are vertically integrated, we are directly working with the producers and they are, there are people that we know. We can call them all by name and, and we can definitely, it's, we've now, of course, we've worked a lot in order to standardize this. So it's not only the Dominican Republic, but also Haiti or working with this, Mexico working with this. So everywhere where there is a, a production tradition, you can replicate this model of a small production sites, get, getting into these big orders of corporates. But the whole idea is to use it as to combine it with this marketing efforts that company have in order for it to make sense. Because it's, of course, it's something it's not more than 30 percent more expensive than general uniforms. But at the end, traditional companies have to understand where is the real benefit from buying from us and not from other producers, the, the regular guys. Yeah, that's really cool. I can imagine why a company beyond 
doing good with producing ethically and supporting families and paying people a living wage, but also even just the fact that you can now turn something very mundane like buying uniforms into corporate responsibility and showing your customers and people that you work with your values. Yeah, I believe that this is something that, again, it's, it's something that was born from an intention that we had to actually, that we would love to have it, you know, that if I would have a, an SME, I would like to be able to make more complex decisions about daily purchases like that one. And I and I believe this is something that is definitely going to take both us and ethical fashion to the next level. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. That's going to be really cool. Yeah, nice. and, the, and the greatest thing, just in a note with this kind of order, is, is that it defies the cycles of fashion. Because right now, even if we wanted to, and we are breaking on the impact that we make with virtue, we cannot hire people 12 months a year. No brands does that because of the cycles. You, you're, you're never all the time producer full on. You, you, don't produce, you don't produce 100% your capacity all year. Actually, you don't do it 70% of the time. You don't produce 100% capacity. And it's the same with small production sites. So what we want is actually to provide sustainability to those production sites with these large orders and, and standardizing their production processes. That's cool. That's really interesting. And so now you've been doing this for how many years now? Two years. Two years. Two years. So you've learned a lot over the last few years. What would you go back to you as you're graduating or leaving your law school education? What advice would you go and give to you leaving then, knowing what you know today? I would have said start sooner, launch sooner, you know, get the strength. And, you know, just jump in order, because this is something that I wanted to do for a long time. This is not something that just sprinkled, not an idea that I came up all of a sudden, but I didn't know I could do it. So I definitely made the, ed the educated decision to jump and do it right and maybe work more with startups. I would have definitely advised myself that. I worked with a very interesting startup in Berlin called Mimi, but that was my only real experience working with a startup. So, so definitely that and, and start sooner. I would have started in the university, which is the perfect time to start a company, in my perception. When you're at uni, when you're still, you don't have that many responsibilities besides the university and you can concentrate and you can allow yourself to make more mistakes, I feel. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I did my first business when I was in school and I always said, people were always saying, well, you're taking a ton of risk doing that in school. I was like, not really. I mean, the worst case scenario <laughs> is you finish your degree and... You know, it doesn't work and you drink a few extra beers to drown your <laughs> sorrows, but you don't have, most likely, you don't have a wife, kids, you don't have a huge amount of obligations and yeah. you know, you're going to have your student debt either way. So might as well start working on something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's definitely a good point. And Latin Americans have the extra benefit that we don't normally have student debt. This is not something the Europeans also, they, we don't. We don't have this process, so we don't we don't even have to care that much about that. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's it's something when you talk to people outside of the U.S. that they just can't even comprehend how screwed <laughs> up our system is in the states. That basically puts you in debt for as many as twenty or thirty years. Sometimes it's just crazy, and it, it's one of those things that doesn't make any sense in a country where you know we need more and more business creation whether it's tech startups or even just starting new restaurants or bars or small businesses, or even if you get a professional degree as a dentist or a lawyer or something like that, 
it's crazy that you can't just go out and start your own business because you have that debt around your neck. It's just, yeah. it's, it's crazy. Yeah, 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 I think so too. I think so too. And that's why I'm surprised that people are actually, I, mean, I don't know if because you get used or you get more comfortable with the fact of having a debt. I mean, because it's something that everyone has. I would understand that that allows Latin American founders to be a bit more risky when it comes to, to launching a company, but it's actually the contrary. Yeah, I mean, Latin Americans have it pretty good, even though a lot of times they don't see it that way because they don't have that university debt. Or if they do, like in Chile, university that's pretty low compared to the US. And you generally live with your parents a lot longer. Exactly. So you don't have those costs. So yeah, I think Latin America is pretty primed to be able to start doing more innovation. Yeah, completely, completely. I believe that tech has taken more and more terrain here. So I do believe that things are going to start changing and, and the conditions are there. The conditions are there. The government incentives are there in a lot of the countries. Dominican Republic counting also there. A lot of foreign money trying to promote that as means of development. So definitely interesting. And again, the, this interconnected world that you can move from point A to point B for cheap money and without major inconvenience. It's not like before. I didn't ask you this before, but I think it's a good time now. So when you left university, you're getting a law degree and a business degree, and you could easily have gone to work in, in a big business with a great degree. And you decided to go this path that not only is it entrepreneurship, it's social entrepreneurship. What did your family and friends say when, <laughs> when you were doing that? Yeah, I, I think it helped a lot that we did the Kickstarter right after. So they, they more or less uh, fell on ease, but it was a big shock, particularly for my former boss, because I, I had an offer that was expecting me uh, after my, my master's. At one point, after, you know, working so hard, trying to fit into this world that I didn't actually fit in, I ended up saying, no, uh, I mean, definitely not doing that, going the other way. It was a big surprise. It was definitely a big surprise, but a lot of support. Also, on the Kickstarter, doing a Kickstarter actually finds you a lot of, you learn how to love people more and, and just the people that you don't want in your life. And that's mainly defined as to the people who support you on your Kickstarter and those who don't. <laughs> that's that's how it becomes afterwards. And yeah, I think it was an exciting move, but it was definitely scary. But nothing is scary, exciting, not scary, like I don't want to do it. And so you talked about people and organizations that supported you. What are some of them that you think are have been helpful and that other people thinking about doing a business or just or a social business might do other than startup chile that you went through yeah that's that's a great question i definitely i would say trust law Thompson Reuters has a huge network of pro bono law firms that tr work with social entrepreneurs and you also have to understand that social entrepreneurship is still new uh, even though maybe you are used to hearing it but this is something that is a concept that is not ingrained in people's mind yet at least on a large scale. So definitely them. USAID helped us a lot. Previous USAID, of course, under President Obama, uh, because now it changed. The whole perspective changed. They cut out all the money. They helped us a lot in the training process with the, with the youngsters in, in, and also in identifying the youngsters that we were going to work with. That was definitely a big help. And yeah, I think those two are have been key to in the moment that we didn't have any support from anyone. And they came in in a very good, you know, open-hearted. Also, Kickstarter, definitely huge help from that from them in terms of, you know, promoting our campaign. We were on the first page of Kickstarter, and even though we are we are a tech company because of all the traceability systems and all the platforms that we've installed in order to make 
fully traceable, the production of clothing, the sale, the vertically integrated process. We are not your traditional techie product that is going on Kickstarter and doing a boom, but we were on the first page global. You know, that was definitely something that put us in front of the competition. So that was a great help. And currently, the expert ministry of the of the Dominican Republic, I have to say, they are firm believers that through fair trade, we can become more competitive and we can become more expert oriented than we've been so far. So definitely, and of course, I'm, I'm missing out on a million people and a million organizations, but we've received a lot of help. And I think this is a good element of, of being a social enterprise. Well, if there's more after, you can just send them to me via email, put them in the, in the blog post that goes out. Oh, perfect. Yeah, that's great. Great idea. And so what's next for Virtue? So Virtue is, is focusing in, in developing this proprietary system to streamline and standardize a small-scale production or producing a, a small production sites. I think that's the, that's the key for ethical fashion. With a lot of technology going into there, being able to actually supervise these production sites from far and for them to actually, for small producers to get in on the process without being a major bureaucratic problem. So I think that's that's our main concern right now. And definitely doing everything we can to connect people and to provide social impact through ethical fashion, through fashion, combining uh, amazing consumers, people that are looking for something different, either it's companies and consumers, governments, everyone that wants to get in on using this amazing vehicle that we found to be so positive. Definitely connecting those two, so the producers and those consumers, and standardizing the solutions so we can replicate them in, in many of the other countries that need it. Haiti is definitely our main goal in terms of expanding our production and at least this standardized production because they have a similar reality to ours, but they are in a way more complicated situation in terms of you know economic opportunities and all of that. So we believe that we could create some real impact in Haiti. And yeah, and working with refugees, I think. The, the amazing thing that we found out is that with a, with a very solid team, we've been able to develop, streamlining the, the process of product from idea to, to execution once you have the money, of course. So there is a lot of card, of, of financing that we need to do. We're just finishing a small financing round now, which puts us in a situation that we can test everything with the card production and everything. But I, I believe that this is going to be what takes us to the next level. Awesome. And where can people find your business online and then find you online? Amazing. So virtue.rocks. So I'm sure you're going to write it in the blog, but it's B-I-R-T-U.rocks, like rocks as the element. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, I'm on Instagram, mainly uh, Jason Groulon, uh, exactly like that. And I, I do have a strikingly page if people look me up on Google and stuff. But yeah, I'm excited to hear what everyone is Things about what we what we've been doing. We are we're recruiting some people for this exciting new stage of our company. So also happy there are some amazing founders out there that want to move to the Dominican Republic and help us in moving this forward. Thanks again for taking the time to do the podcast and have this conversation with me. I didn't really know much about the Dominican Republic ahead of time. I've never been actually and didn't know really anything about the startup ecosystem. So appreciate all the information. It was very worthwhile and I learned a lot. So thanks for that. No, thank you, Nate. It was always amazing to talk to you. And and remember, you're always welcome to come and check it out. The Dominican Republic is awaiting for people like you, brilliant assets, international, you know, thinkers that that can actually bring innovation here and and actually understand what we can do in the international startup ecosystem. Well, yeah, definitely 
come and check it out at some point, hopefully not too far from now. And good luck to you and Guillaume in the future. And shoot me an email when you have your, your next Kickstarter going so we can start to promote it along with uh, this podcast. Amazing. We will definitely. Awesome. Well, thanks and have a good rest of your day. Thank you, Nate. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Crossing Borders. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions for Jason, you can find him on his Instagram, which I'll have linked in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to give me a rating on iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe. Thanks again. 